Welcome to Beyond and I, Northern Ireland's leading, greatest political podcast. Uh, hosting today is myself, Matthew Spires. Uh, James is unavailable this week, so uh, it's just going to be me. But fortunately, I do have a wee guest to tell me along, uh, Patrick Brown of UBI Lab and I. How are you doing? Hi, Matthew. Doing, doing good. Thanks for having me. Uh, can you give us a wee rundown of uh, what you do with yourself? Yeah, so uh, a few, few different things. Uh, I'm a counsellor with the Alliance Party uh, and I'm also doing a PhD in universal basic income and conflict transformation. Uh, and, and through that, I have um, fairly recently last year founded uh, the UBI Lab Northern Ireland, which is the Northern Ireland branch of a worldwide network of uh, local grassroots organised um, organizations dedicated to campaigning for and testing UBI. I think that's brilliant. I think it's, it also feels like it's very much a part of like uh, what's happened over lockdown of a lot of Northern Irish, not just Northern Irish, I assume it happened in like England and other places in Ireland where you just seem to get a lot of people who have now had the time to commit themselves to a lot of these kind of projects. So it's great to see that just happening. A lot of people become a little bit more politically active on some things and uh, we, we actually have like a we softball question that we ask all our all our guests mm-hmm. just uh if you have a favorite piece of like media that comes out of our we piece of the world you know like it could be like tv movie song it literally anything like oh you don't mean like traditional uh news media not at all it could be like a, a movie you really like or what have i see i mean can i say game of thrones is that Asian, okay yeah. is that yeah i'm, that I'm re- like- one of the great things of lockdown is I'm actually rewatching all eight seasons at the that's moment. Uh, although, great. to be honest with you, I'm on season seven now. I might just stop at season seven. That's um, <laughs> that's probably a good idea. Like, I was yeah. so disappointed. I remember, I remember I was in the office and like it was one of those big events where everyone in the office every week talked about mm. what happened on Game of Thrones. And I remember being watching. I think it was like the third episode of season seven. And being like, I don't think this is going well. I don't. Think, I think this is going on a downward trajectory. Uh, I was just so disappointed with it. Uh, oh, it. Hit me so hard. Do you feel like with rewatching it, do you still like enjoy it as much as maybe did it? Even even more. You know, there's really? little subtle things. Um, God, no, don't want to give any spoilers for any any listeners <laughs> that haven't watched it all. But there's a certain character that has a very dramatic character arc at the end of season eight. But if you actually oh, yeah. watch through all seven seasons before it starts to make a little bit more sense that they clearly did have that plan in mind they did rush it yes but the clues were there i don't think you're just you're just not expecting it in the first watch but when you watch it back again you start to see them there so and there's just so many things that you watch you're like oh i I totally forgot that that happened yeah yeah, yeah. your mind just like keeps all the main bits but then you get the whenever you go back you get all the wee like Mm -hmm. little details and little storylines you didn't get before it I love that. Yeah, and the but, red wedding is always shocking, no matter how many yeah. times you watch it, you know. You hear that music and you just get PTSD from it like that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, so let's get into, I guess, the more serious side of it. So uh, we, me and James had a chat about UBI a couple weeks ago. I think we, our, ours was very much like a light kind of look into UBI. I feel like we're going to get into kind of a more heavy kind of look into it today. Uh, and let's just start off with the most obvious. In your own words, what is UBI? 
So a universal basic income is a unconditional uh, amount of money paid to every every resident in a specified area. Uh, it's it's non-withdrawable and, and unconditional paid to individuals. Um, it's, it can be paid to all citizens um, or it can be paid to all residents in a specified area and that, that's part of the, the debate within the, the community as well but it, essentially it is a unconditional amount of money paid to everybody in society. Yes uh, and how, how does that function with things like uh, obviously in our current benefit system we have like disability uh, mm. if you have disability you obviously get more is that factored in with you in the UBI system? So this is the thing about UBI is that it can be, mean so many different things to different people. You have your, your very libertarian um, UBIs, you know, Milton Friedman, Charles Taylor and so on, who are all for you just get your certain amount of money, which probably to them wouldn't be much more than universal credit currently mm -hmm. um, to, to throw some figures out there. And then that would also end up stripping back the entire welfare state and possibly other public services as well. Then you have advocates on the progressive end of UBI, which I would count myself amongst and the UBI lab network and basic income Northern Ireland as, as, as well as local organizations who advocate for or a progressive uh, UBI. So a pro the aim of a progressive UBI is to enhance the current uh, welfare state to make it you know, radically uh, fairer and less uh, conditional um, and to basically you know, fill the gaps in, in, in current uh, public service provision and enhance them in many ways, but not to see those cut back in any way whatsoever. So you wouldn't be seeing cuts to the health service or the education budget or anything like that as a result of UBI. You would see a replacement of uh, work-related means-tested benefits. So, for example, universal credit being the obvious one and legacy benefits uh, linked to that. You, we would not advocate to replace disability-related uh, benefits, so your personal independence payment, your, your carer's allowance, etc. And that's because with a UBI, people would still be uh, able to work. Indeed, they would be encouraged to work. Some people may not need to work. They may be comfortable living on that level of income, but ultimately people would be encouraged to work. And indeed, I think it would remove a lot of the poverty traps that you see in the current welfare uh, system that, that we have. Um, but of course, people, on, uh, people with disabilities or with caring responsibilities don't necessarily have the ability or, or the time or the freedom to go out and work. So they deserve and and require that additional top-up uh, income, which would, of course, still need to be means-tested because it would only go to people with disabilities. Um, but that essential part of the welfare system would still have to remain as well as the UBI. Yes. Uh, just to refer back to something you said earlier, in terms of like the, the two conceptions, you have the libertarian and the, uh, the progressive. Where would you rank Andrew Yang's uh, kind of... And it was very just well, uh, well known to a lot of people. It kind of became a bit of a meme. Like the whole, mm -hmm. we're going to mm -hmm. give £1,000, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Uh, where would you rank that? Yeah, oh, look, I'm a big fan of Andrew. Uh, I actually met him in Iowa in 2019. Really? It's quite oh. funny. I was, I was actually volunteering for Cory Booker out through Polytrip, my, my company that takes people out to volunteer on, on US elections. And I was walking around a corner in my Cory t-shirt and I bumped into Andrew, literally <laughs> bumped into him. And he's actually a really tall guy. And I'm six foot four. He's maybe six two or something like really? that. So, Hello, Andrew. And in my hand, I had a copy of his book that I'd picked up from his stall a few yards down. So I was like, Andrew, I've got your book. Will you sign it for me? <laughs> so uh, he did. And he's a really nice guy. And he said, oh, Corey, Corey's a, Corey's a good lad. Maybe 
maybe they know each other because New York, New Jersey, etc. I don't know. Maybe he was just being nice, but he seemed like a really lovely guy. And I said, oh, I'm doing my PhD in basic income, etc. So, and I hope he will be mayor of, of New York uh, this year, of course. Um, but I, I think possibly one of the reasons why Yang's UBI became so mainstream and didn't get a lot of criticism is because it's not a overly progressive um, UBI. It does work in the American context, don't get me wrong, um, mainly because the way he was going to fund the freedom dividend of a uh, thousand bucks a month was through a, a federal uh, sales tax, which, which we know here as a, as a VAT. They have statewide tax, which is usually 10% or under in the US, but they don't have a federal sales tax. So there, there would have been a sort of uh, fiscal space there to to do a, uh, a GST or a VAT or something like that around 10, maybe even 20%. Um, and you probably would have gotten away with that politically. Here, we already have a VAT of 20%. So we don't have a lot of room there um, before we're reaching the sort of highest levels in the world, which is Hungary at 27%, if you're, if you're interested to know. Um, but the problem with VAT as the primary means of paying for UBI is that it requires everybody to roughly pay equally into that based on the amount that they consume. And research will show that people on lower incomes tend to consume as a percentage or ratio of their income more valuable goods. So relative to their income, they actually end up, they would end up paying more into the pot to fund the UBI, which I don't think is, is particularly fair because a UBI at its core should be redistributive. It should do something to try and uh, tackle inequality. You know, we're not talking, taking back the control of means of production and, and all that sort of thing here, but we're talking about a fairer system that gives everyone a fairer start and tries to deal with some of the inherent, you know, systemic or structural inequalities of, of capitalism. Um, so just giving people money to then buy things that actually cost more is not going to really help people yeah. at the bottom of the income ladder with a step, much of a step up. Yeah, I mean, that's effectively, as you're saying, a basically poverty, poverty trap in terms of, yeah, we're giving you money, but we're also gonna just make it more expensive to live, which is, yeah, a very difficult aspect. Uh, just to bring it back to, to the Northern Irish context on UBI, um, is, that, is it something that can be done in Stormont? Or is this something that needs to be drawn over to a Westminster uh, authority as well? well? How does that lie? Yeah, so through the UBI lab, we've done some initial costings on this. Um, and we initially did set out to try and come up with what a Northern Ireland uh, you know, devolved UBI would look like led by the Stormont executive. And we came fairly quickly to the conclusion that it wouldn't be feasible. And I, I say that uh, hand in heart as you know, one of the biggest UBI advocates that you'll meet, but it would not be feasible for the Northern Ireland executive to do a UBI, which would be um, adequate enough to lift people out of, of poverty and um, remove uh, you know, universal credit and replace that and so on. So what you could potentially do is a, is a very small UBI of 100, 200 pounds a month paid to everybody. Um, but I'm, I'm not sure that that would be redistributive enough to really help the poorest. And also, crucially, we don't have the fiscal powers in terms of devolved tax powers to 
make it a redistributive UBI to increase income tax or capital gains tax or introduce you know, wealth taxes, et cetera, et cetera, to try and fund that uh, net cost on top of the current um, social security system in Northern Ireland. So what you would have, although we technically have the power to vary how much we pay in Northern Ireland for welfare, we would have to front the net cost, so the additional cost of those you know, 100, 200 pound payments to everybody um, out of the, the block grant. Um, and given the very limited revenue raising powers of Stormont and the very low tax base here, it would be exceptionally difficult for us to do that. But what we could do is we could do a trial of UBI at a devolved level and we could continue to lobby uh, the UK government and you know, hopefully in the future that will be um, replaced with a more progressive UK government that might be interested in looking at UBI and alternatives like it. Um, and the idea being that at that point in the future, hopefully Northern Ireland will have a shelf ready plan uh, for how we would deliver UBI. Um, and potentially some evidence from basic income trials as to the sort of impact and outcomes a UBI can deliver. Yeah, I think that that does lead on to a question that uh, James actually posed to me whenever we were talking about this a couple of weeks ago. Do you, uh, I feel like it's almost an unfair question to ask in some ways because of how Northern Ireland has functioned in the past couple of years. Do you trust a Northern Irish civil service and Northern Irish uh, executive to be able to pull off a task of a UBI? Well, are we talking about um, a Northern Ireland-wide UBI devolved or uh, a UBI that would come from, from the UK Treasury? Because UK Treasury. On, the, on the latter option, it would probably, they would probably take over the yeah. management of, of that system. I would imagine that would be the simplest way to do it with obviously buy-in from the institutions in Northern Ireland. Yes, yeah. Um, given the current situation in Northern Ireland over the last year where the, where the executive has been asked to turn around financial support schemes very quickly mm. and has, I, I don't think you can really overestimate the level of failure that are, there has been within many of those schemes. I mean, the UK led ones furlough scheme has worked very well. It's not yeah. perfect. It doesn't go far enough, but it has worked. It has been very effective. Um, if you look at Northern Ireland, if you look at grants being paid to political parties, if you look at small businesses not getting, you know, a couple of hundred quid for, for months after their application goes in, taxi drivers who didn't have insurance because they weren't driving during COVID being denied from the taxi driver support scheme, the, the high, high street retail vouchers that we were promised in January, which obviously were a massive mistake because we weren't going to be able to go shopping in January. And I think they had a good idea that that was going to be the case, the fact that there are still, you know, thousands of people who haven't got a penny um, and excluded NI have been doing great work around trying to highlight those issues. So I, and, and also the fact that, and, and this is probably going to come out in the next few weeks, that there's a massive underspend right now, you know, yeah. over a hundred million possibly that is going to be potentially be underspent um, uh, ahead of the end of the financial year in, in March. And that's just a massive scandal. So yeah. we've seen the failure of the Northern Ireland executive to actually do targeted and, and means-tested schemes, but I think that actually helps the argument for basic income in that in a crisis or in any scenario, means-testing is inherently costly, it's difficult, there's an administrative burden, and there will always be uh, mistakes made. Um, so why not do something that by its very nature removes those sort of barriers and restrictions? It goes out to everybody. That's what it's meant to do. That's why the USA did stimulus checks, because you, know, you even had, you had AOC and you even had Donald Trump saying, look, let's just get money in people's pockets. Of course, Donald Trump wanted his name written on the checks and all. Um, but 
logically speaking, if you want to get money into people's pockets quickly, you remove the conditionality and you just get it out there. Yeah, exactly. That's, that's, that's very true. That's a good point. And I got to applaud you for answering that question because I'm sure it, it, it's a hard uh, question to ask, especially as a counselor to, to well, look, I mean, I have constituents that. coming to me every day asking when's my money coming in or what, you know, when's the scheme for company directors yeah. coming out or I, you know, a sole trader, I haven't been able to apply for a single penny. I'm on universal credit or maybe they're not even eligible for universal credit for whatever reason. And, I think if there's one positive that's going to come out of the last year, it's that people will be a lot more, what they will understand much better, the, the social security um, net and yeah. the massive gaping holes in it that so many people fall through. And there might be a certain additional level of compassion there and understanding for how people find themselves in circumstances where they do need to yeah. go on to universal credit. And I think that sort of understanding opens up a broader conversation around how we can reform that system to better support people enter yeah. UBI. I mean, that is definitely, even if we look on like historical trends, you can definitely see that in times of like crisis, whenever you get out of those crises, people often have, you know, like with like World War II, or deal. something like yeah. that yeah the new deal you've got all these things where people usually are able to come together with more and think like okay how are we going to answer the current issues or inequalities which we see right now so hopefully that is something that that we do see uh fingers crossed absolutely and you know we have the the catchphrase in the ubi lab network that ubi is our generation's uh, nhs because yes. after World War II, after people sacrificed so much for their countries, governments knew they had to do something to reform the inequalities of the, of the time. Um, because you had massive, massive inequalities build up after the industrial period where you know, capital was accumulated by businessmen, industrialists, by you know, slavers in the, in the deep south in America, et cetera, et cetera. And post-World War II, they realized that they had to do something to redistribute that and make society uh, fairer. So you had the emergence of the welfare state, you had the emergence of the NHS, you had investment uh, in ordinary people and a massive growth of the middle class and the middle class built modern America, it built the modern UK and, and so many other uh, countries that went down a similar route. You had this massive year on year end growth and increase in, in living standards and you know what? the debt of those nations of the UK and the US, that's the highest it's ever been, um, you know, post-war. Yeah. We're starting to uh, approach post-war levels of debt now, but I'm just not sure the money has been spent as effectively as, as it could be. Yeah. But there's an important point to make that the more debt a country tends to have, the better the outcomes for its citizens. I mean, look at Japan, for example, very high standards of living and its yeah. GDP or, or its uh, debt is you know, 10 times GDP or something ridiculous like that, but it's, it's not hurting the citizens of the country. Um, so I, I think there's learning there that you need to invest after a crisis um, and that will pay dividends in the long run. If you divest, if you do austerity, if you cut back, if you try and reduce the debt, then the, the, the negative outcomes for the population simply uh, continue and get worse. Yeah. Um, speaking of kind of this like uh, idea of a more global situation, have there been many examples of NI or of countries similar to NI kind of adopting a UBI-esque system? Has there been a, many kind of case studies, kind of um, post-conflict kind of? So the post-conflict angle is obviously the focus point of my research and yeah. there is nowhere that is, has done a UBI. 
the the, the bear, and that's probably why I got the funding for my research because <laughs> it is you know um, unique and that makes it both difficult and interesting as a project. Yes. But what what I have looked at, I've looked at evidence from UBI trials in in developed countries. You know, your your Canada, California, Barcelona, Finland, and those all have you know different types of UBI trial and go into the relative merits and dismerits of each of them if, if you wish but what I wanted to look at is where money has been given to people post-conflict um, to try and bring about peace or, or reconciliation so there is a lot of examples of cash transfer programs and generous microfinance programs and um, the cash transfer programs are a mix of conditional and unconditional payments but there is examples, particularly in African and Asian nations, where that has been done. Um, there's a project in Sri Lanka that I've, I've got some good links to that's currently having research done in it with uh, war widows of the Sri Lankan conflict. Um, there is a really interesting one in the Philippines, um, given to communities with lots of paramilitary violence, where it actually reduced paramilitary activity. Um, there's been evidence from Uganda, Zimbabwe, Mozambique, um, all of places where communities have been given cash transfers post-conflict and it has helped with reconciliation and helped um, most importantly in, in communities with high levels of poverty. It's helped ex-combatants reintegrate back into society because it's not sustainable after conflict to reintegrate people back into, uh, into poverty. Um, because then you have the same, often the same grievances, the same desires to get involved in illegal activity, and that can then spur into conflict. And a lot of African conflicts are based around, around resources, around land, around you know, things like that. So, but that's not a million miles away from the causes of the Northern Ireland conflict. Of course, the political, social, and, and legal discrimination against the Catholic community was the number one driving factor of the conflict. But you also have had huge amounts of, of economic discrimination around benefits and around housing and around employment, and huge levels of inequality and poverty, particularly in in you know, those Republican working class uh, communities where maybe you know two thirds of children were born into poverty. Um, so whilst a lot of the institutional and legal issues were addressed through the Good Friday Agreement, at the crux of my thesis is the idea that we haven't resolved the lingering issues around paramilitarism. Um, and you know, particularly young people getting involved in paramilitarism and organized crime aspects of that. You know, it's not your standard, you know, planting bombs and your political attacks and all that. We know that, but there is still a high level of paramilitary violence in Northern Ireland. And in fact, it's increased by 60% over the last, I think, five to, to 10 years. So you still have a massive undercurrent of that problem. And my argument is a lot of that is because those same communities uh, who were most affected by the troubles, who maybe, you know, had the highest recruitment for the IRA, for the UDA, are still those communities that are most deprived in Northern Ireland today. It's still, you know, the same wards in the top 20 multiple deprivation index. Um, and a lot of those issues around involvement with paramilitarism and an inability to sustainably reintegrate with society is as a result of not having a fair enough economic uh, settlement as a result of the Good Friday Agreement. What you basically had was a continuation of a neoliberal agenda which focused on a, on a growth-led strategy, you know, gentrification in Belfast, urban cloning, foreign direct investment, public-private partnerships, uh, 
welfare reform being a really shocking example, which has pushed so many more people into poverty and possibly into the grips of getting into debt with paramilitaries and drug dealing and stuff like that. And there's, there's evidence and research on, on that. Um, and so there has been a peace dividend through the Good Friday Agreement, undoubtedly, and people are better off. And you go into Belfast, it's a beautiful city. Now you walk along the lag and it looks great. But in those communities, it's still largely the same. So the argument that I'm making is the peace dividend has paid out, but it hasn't paid out equally. And those communities that suffered the most, the most are arguably uh, in, in need of a, a, a much greater payment, um, and they haven't got a single penny. Yeah, I think that, that also touches on the idea of like how, how these issues get framed in kind of not just a media, but also, I, I guess, a political context of, uh, as you're saying, a lot of this is kind of an economic uh, issue that needs to be addressed in such a way but the only way that we ever talk about kind of paramilitarism and this kind of thing just the way because our pol the way our politics is framed is obviously orange and you know green it's a, it's effective just it's effectively easier just to kind of blame the other side or to say that it's a this community issue than to actually I suppose mm -hmm. figure out the kind of economic ways of actually helping these people but uh, I mean you can see that in America, you can see that. And I guess that is one of the things that does reassure you somewhat that, as you were saying, we do have, there are other places who have like kind of these conflicts. And while we want to think of Northern Ireland as being unique in the kind of world, I guess we are in some ways just, you know, you can look at like Bosnia or Cyprus or any of these kind of post-conflicts and see the, the trends that follow in all these places that just go on again and again. Uh, but then these places sometimes do actually, as you're saying, in these areas, there are ways to improve. There are ways to hopefully see good things happen. Yeah, you know, not just continue the bad things, and, and hopefully that does happen with UBI. But on from, from a nice note to put on my like, uh, as you're saying, neoliberal hat, and say just to say like, how, how does UBI interact with the idea of wanting a meritocratic society? And just to explain what merit what meritocratic is for people who maybe don't know. Um, uh, I'll try not to be too complex with it. Just the idea that uh, you want a, a society where someone gets rewarded for the work that they do. If they work harder, they should get more money. If they work not as hard, they shouldn't get as much money. You know, you get it off of merit. You you are judged off of the merit of the work you do. And kind of that's the the general idea of it. But yeah, the what's your what's your answer for that? There, there are definitely benefits to a meritocracy. Of course, we want people who work hard to be rewarded for that. Absolutely. Um, but the problem is that a meritocracy only works well where you have as level as possible of a playing field to start with. Yeah. Um, so we have the problem where people in Northern Ireland, children in Northern Ireland, one in five of them are born into poverty, but that's going to be a much, much lower number in your leafy suburbs of, of South Belfast or in, in North Down, for, for example. But if you go up to the Craigan and Derry or you go into West Belfast, two thirds of children in those areas are, are born into, into poverty. And as a result, they have far less freedoms, far fewer choices. Their parents have far fewer choices on how to raise them and how to uh, support them. And they're not going to have the same opportunities to advance through a meritocracy as those children growing up in South Belfast or in, in North Down. So that is simply not fair. Now, can you always remove every single barrier and create a completely level playing field? No, I don't think that is, is possible. Um, I think 
experiments around that have obviously been tried in, in communist uh, countries and they have completely failed um, economically. So I'm not advocating for that necessarily. What I am advocating for is that everybody as a right, as a human right, should have a, a fair start in, in life. And UBI is a major step towards that. There are plenty of other things that we can do. We can improve education, we can improve infrastructure, we can improve healthcare, we can invest in more public services, we can do jobs, programs, all of these are good things and I'm not saying we shouldn't do it. But I do have a very firm belief and this is probably where you know I came at UBI from when I first stumbled upon the idea in sort of 2011, 2012 when I was at university is that, um, Poverty at its core is an absence of money, you know, to, to define poverty. And people in poverty, poverty are, are not in that situation because they have, you know, personal issues, because there's some fault with their, their character, as, as Margaret Thatcher would have made out. They are in poverty because they don't have enough cash, quite simply put. And if you want to resolve to eliminate poverty, uh, material poverty, then the best way to do that is to give people money. Uh, and that's why I think UBI uh, is that crucial starting point. And you can call it UBI, you can call it a cash transfer, you know, you can call it a, uh, a grant for people, a basic income grant, you know, it has various different names, but crucially people need that basic level of income um, in order for us to have a fair meritocracy. Yeah, that's completely fair. Um... Danny, economically, how does how do you see UBI working in kind of a short to long term kind of uh, scale? Does it does it differ in terms of like whenever it's implemented to whenever it kind of reaches a more idealistic place economically for you? Especially with with the fact that it's let's say we we are going to go into a, a recession right now, possibly, or if we are going to go into some form of I feel like it's somewhat inevitable that there's going to be a couple of bad economic years for us. Um, how do you see UBI coming in if we do not have a brilliant basis economically to actually implement it? Well, I would argue as, as someone who is a, a fairly recent convert to modern monetary theory, yeah. um, that I don't know if you're familiar with, with that idea, but that's basically the idea that in a sovereign money system where a government has complete control of the amount of money in, in circulation and control of their, their currency and so on, that they can print as much money as they need to invest in, in the economy. So, um, and obviously Northern Ireland doesn't have that as it is a devolved region within the UK. Ireland doesn't have that because it's up to the euro, but the UK government does have that, and that is largely what they've been, been doing. That's where they've been getting the money for furlough and, and all of the payments over the last year. That's where they got the money to bail out the banks in 2008. Um, so the, the, the barriers to, to paying for it in that regard are not that significant. Uh, and indeed, evidence will show that where you do um, run a, a large deficit, but invest it in the right way in terms of, of stimulating an economy during a recession, then you will recover a lot faster. So one of the reasons why the US recovered a lot faster than the UK is because Obama did a 800 million stimulus package um, alongside bailing out the, the, the banks. Might have been more, might have been 800 billion actually. It is the US, so possibly, yeah. Um, whereas the UK did austerity 
which actually plunged a lot more people into poverty. And of course, when people are in poverty, they're, they're not working as much. Um, they are not spending as much in the economy. There's all sorts of knock-on effects, possibly around crime and the cost of crime, around health, cost of healthcare, and all of those associated. And the cost of poverty in the UK, by the way, is 78 billion a year. Um, Joseph Browntree uh, Foundation have, have estimated that. So it's a huge cost to the taxpayer to actually keep people in, in poverty. So that's one of the, 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 the long-term savings uh, that, that UBI could, could present. Um, but it, yeah, it's important to remember that every pound that the government spends in the economy is an investment in the economy and in its people. And generally, if you make an investment, you're going to get a return on that. Um, so for example, if you drop a load of money into a poor community, suddenly that poor community has more money, they're going to start spending more, they're going to start doing it in, in local shops, who maybe haven't had a lot of money because they've been based in a poor community. So suddenly that shopkeeper is going to be able to take on a part-time or a full-time worker, potentially from the same local community that's spending that money, and so on and so on. And you get all sorts of these local economic multipliers as a result of uh, stimulus that um, can, can continue to reverberate around, uh, around the economy for, for a very long time. So that's definitely one of the huge benefits of, of UBI. I, I suppose long-term, the main thing you have to worry about is inflation. You know, if, if the price of goods is constantly increasing, increasing and the economy is, is overheating and the only way to manage inflation is to destroy some of the money in the economy. You know, if there's too much money out there, um, then, then you're going to have uh, significant inflation. So to destroy money in the uh, economy, you need to look at taxation, income tax, wealth tax, whatever. Uh, and that's basically the control on that. And that is the, the difficult political uh, point of that. But at the minute, there is a massive amount of slack in the economy. We are in a recession. There's a lot more that can be done to make sure that, that people and the economy is meeting, meeting its maximum potential. So we should be investing and spending as much as possible. When inflation starts to pick up a few years down the line, then we have to look at taxation to try and keep that under control. And that's going to require difficult political decisions, but it needs to be done. Yeah, that's, that's very fair. Uh... And I kind of touching on that kind of same point, maybe on a very tactical standpoint, do you see an incremental path, path to uh, reaching UBI? Like, uh, I feel like a lot of times when we talk about UBI, we, we see it as kind of a, just this one big thing. It's a really big change. It just happens mm. uh, in a single sweeping movement. Do you see some way of incrementally moving towards it? Maybe, you know, taking yourself through certain steps of, okay, first we can maybe do this, and then we can do that, and then we can do, you know, is there a path for you like that? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Look, I'm a pragmatist when it comes to this stuff, so I'm willing to look at anything that will reform the current welfare system and make it fairer and get more money in the hands of people who need it. Um, so two ways you can do it. You can look at trying to reform the current system. Um, so obviously, there, there are ongoing uh, campaigns at the minute around increasing universal credit by £20 a, a, a week. I don't think that really start, scratches the surface much, but it's, it's a start. Um, but you could look at increasing universal credit and removing some of the conditionalities and sanctions around it. Um, and you know the tape, you know look at reducing the tapering effect when you go into work and and, and stuff like that. You know interlink, uh, uh, disconnect it from from work more, um, and I think that would be a good start. You could also look at just doing a a, um, a small uh, cash payment on top of existing income, on top of existing benefits. So. 
Um, there are proposals out there by the Citizens Basic Income Trust and others who have called for a, a, a payment of sort of 200 to 300 pounds, I believe, that could be paid for through reforming the personal tax allowance, increasing income tax by a few percentage points, so not very much at all. Um, that would be paid to everybody. It would be paid on top of benefits and work. It would probably lead to some benefits being reduced down because it would be counted as, as earned income and so on. Um, but that would be one way to, to start to build out the same structures uh, and logistics that would deliver a UBI. Uh, and then you could potentially look at actually withdrawing the universal credit and so on altogether and doing a full UBI whilst also putting up the, the, the necessary taxes to pay for it. That's brilliant. I think uh, I've come to the end of most of my questions here. I think I'm pretty much done uh, interrogating you now. <laughs> no. That's okay. Uh, um, do you have any questions you want to ask myself? What made you guys um, pick up on UBI initially? What was the interest? Um, so I believe first off, James, uh, he, he actually had to do some research on it himself for his work. So, so he, he was drawn into it originally by that. And I think we were very much then like, we've actually had like debates with like our friends about it. We've, we've had a lot of talk about it. And then also... I'm someone who, who loves like a new idea. Like uh, I just love the idea of like finding something which at the very least feels new and like f trying to figure it out, trying to see how it like fits in with like other ideas, other ideologies, where does it actually fit in in the, in the global scheme of like polit politics. And so that, that this subject obviously massively interests me because it's only an idea that's been around for like maybe well, that I know of, it's been around for like five years or whatever, whatever it has it's been. It's funny that because it's been around forever. Has it? Um, yeah, actually, uh, one of the earliest sort of references to anything that resembles a basic income. You know, there are mentions of it in ancient Greek philosophy that I'll not bore you with. But in Thomas oh, right. Burr's Utopia in the yeah. 15th century, he talks about a unconditional payment as a cure for thievery. Um, so if you want to eliminate thieves, you know, stealing bread to feed their starving families in medieval England, um, yes. then you give them a small amount of money so they don't do that. Um, and, you know, Moore, Moore was a great sort of enlightenment humanist uh, yeah. scholar. Those ideas seem to, seem to sort of die out for a few hundred years. You had them coming in and off, you know, Thomas Paine and, and others have revived it. Um, Martin Luther King was a massive advocate of UBI. Um, Richard Nixon almost did UBI. Again, it was probably going to be more of a, it was more of a negative income tax and it was probably yeah. more of the right wing element. It was Milton Friedman was actually advising on that project, but it came very close to being ruled out federally. Alaska has had something of a basic income in terms of their, their um, permanent fund uh, dividend for, I think that's been around for 40 plus years now there. Um, and actually Alaska is one of the most uh, equal and happy states in the US. Uh, I think it's like the least unequal and it's the second happiest after Hawaii. And to be honest, if you lived in Hawaii, you would be pretty happy. So, yeah. um, so, and there was a lot of North American trials, both in Canada and the US in the 70s, that some of them provided the evidence base for the near federal rollout of it yeah. under, under Nixon. So it's been around for some time, but we've seen a massive explosion of trials in sort yeah. of the 2017 to 19 period. And, that's, and then you had Yang, of course. So that's why it's 
become more on the mainstream, but still in the fringes. Yeah. And then you had COVID, which has brought it squarely uh, into, into the mainstream. Um, but yeah, it is interesting because it has been around for, for so long, um, but people still see it as quite a, a new and novel idea, which is interesting. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's so interesting. You always like, that's not, that's not what happens with everything. It's, it's that idea of like nothing's new, but then at the same time, just things just kind of gets recontextualized, I suppose, in, in kind of modern circumstances. Oh, I just love learning about stuff like that. Like that wee fact about like it being in utopia with like the, the, the bread is something I always love learning. That's something I love. But yeah, uh, I suppose this is where we'll we'll close it out, I guess. Uh, is there anything you want to plug, I guess? I, that's what they say at the end of podcasts. I don't really... <laughs> Yeah, yeah, go on the UBI Lab um, network website and look for their publications tab and you'll find our proposal for a real peace dividend for Northern Ireland. So that's our proposal for a trial of basic income. Um, it's in, in Belfast at the moment, um, but we're looking at also um, developing a trial for dairy. And we, we recently brought together um, individuals, councillors, officers from several different uh, local authorities across Northern Ireland to discuss this proposal and how we're going to work towards developing a full feasibility study akin to the one that was released in Scotland last year as to how a, a basic income trial could be delivered in Northern Ireland, possibly across those two cities, possibly in other locations as well. So check out that proposal as our sort of initial foundation for how that's going to work uh, and then watch this space for further plans uh, coming along the line as well with regard to that. Brilliant. Okay. I think that's a, I'll strap up for this week then. Uh, we'll be back soon with another episode, hopefully. And uh, thank you very much for chatting with me, Patrick. Yeah, no problem at all. Good to, good to chat, Matthew. Thanks, all right. Bro. See you later. Bye.